back to another edition of the Dog and Duck Show. My name is Warren. I am the dog. With me, as always, is Mark, and he is the duck. And we are going to get into the the greatest weekend of NFL playoff football in the history of the NFL. Mark, how are you doing, my friend? It is no exaggeration, Warren. How can you not be doing great after the weekend we just had? Just wall-to-wall excitement. Every game was better than the game before it. Uh, it was unbelievable. I'm, I'm still uh, just kind of speechless about it, but I'm going to find a way to talk about it for an hour. Well, I mean, just right up front, I got to tell you, I mean, I was I was all into these playoff games going into the weekend. We talked about it on the last show that I was excited. We were excited about every single game. We thought they were all going to be great games. The 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 Bengals uh, um, the Bengals game was fantastic. The 49ers game, the um, the Rams game, and then the Chiefs. And I was able to watch pretty much all of those games. Um, and the 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 Chiefs Bills game was the one that we we're looking forward to the most. And uh, you know what? It started at like 3:30, I think, on Sunday afternoon. Yeah. And um, uh, at my church, I, I volunteer with our youth ministry, but uh, this Sunday night, I was supposed to be off, but a couple of our volunteers um, called in sick, so I stepped in to volunteer. So at about 5.30, I'm driving over to the church yeah. and uh, wondering what's going on with the game. Thankfully, one of the students um, that was you know, at the youth group he had the game going on his phone. So we were watching the game uh, at the church in the youth group before things really got started. And we'll get into the game in just a little bit. But with 13 seconds left in the game, his phone died. And I was like, okay, that's God's way of telling me we need to get started with youth group. So come on, let's go. So unbelievable weekend unbelievable games uh we'll get into that in just a minute but before we do let's talk a little bit of dog and duck news so mark why don't you get us started what's happening in duckland well what's happening in duckland is the same thing as what's happening in Huskyland, warren the oregon uh men's and women's basketball teams went to the hardwood and played washington uh this weekend really important game on the men's side they were tied in the conference standings heading into the game they were both in fourth place uh so kind of a pivotal game for conference positioning and oregon i have to say warren put the beat down on the huskies they won 84 to 56 i think i saw it was 48 to 13 at one point uh we've talked about oregon kind of always seems to hit their stride at this time of the year and this game certainly illustrated that uh, 12 out of 13 now wins for uh, the men against the Huskies. And then the Oregon women uh, matched in that one wasn't so much of a surprise. Oregon's women is a women's team is a top 20 team and the Huskies are kind of middle of the pack, but the Oregon women uh, beat the Huskies for the ninth straight time. So a couple uh, great wins in this rivalry for uh, the duck basketball teams. No doubt they they put the beat down on the dogs. Not a huge surprise. I think most people kind of saw that coming, although the Huskies did come into the game, I believe having won four of their five previous games, starting to feel like maybe we had turned the corner. Um, 
we beat Oregon State, which is obviously a team that's on the lower end, uh, Cal. But uh, there was a little bit of a sliver of hope that maybe uh, there could be, you know, an opportunity against Oregon. But really, after seeing what Oregon did the previous weekend, um, you know, beating, upsetting two top five teams, you you really would have to be uh, holding out a lot of hope that the Huskies would have won that game. So, yeah, congrats to the the Ducks on on those two basketball wins and. Um, there's really not a lot much that I can say about those games. I am curious though, Mark, um, with the gridiron, um, you know, there was a couple of news items that came out over the last week or so. Uh, the two star running backs for the Oregon Ducks over the last few years, CJ Verdell and Troy Dye. At the end of the season, it appeared as if they were both coming back. Um, Troy Dye entered the transfer portal and has since committed to the University of Southern California with Lane, uh, not Lane Kiffin, with, um, uh, why am I blanking out on his name? Lincoln um, Riley. Lincoln Riley, yeah. I want to say Lane Kiffin. Lincoln Riley. And, uh, and C.J. Verdell just announced yesterday that he's going to declare for the NFL draft. So, how are how are you? How are Ducks fans feeling about saying goodbye to that terrific tandem? Yeah, I I actually didn't. I I wasn't assuming that both of them were coming back. Uh, I kind of thought that both of them might end up going into the NFL. Uh, and so the the die transfer to USC is the more surprising piece of news for those two things. I think for CJ Verdell, he's had pretty serious injuries the last two years that have cut a season short. And so there was some argument of, well, if he comes back, maybe he has a healthy year that bolsters his stock. But then the other thought is you have a limited shelf life as a running back. And if you've already had a couple significant injuries, better to get drafted and get, get a pro contract and try to stay healthy as long as possible while getting paid. So uh, wish CJ Verdell nothing but the best. And frankly, Warren, this sounds weird, but I wish Travis Dye nothing but the best. He played four years for the Ducks. He graduated from the University of Oregon. He's one of, I think, the top five all-time leading rushers in Oregon history. And the fact that he is kind of given this wonky fifth year of eligibility due to COVID protocols and is using it to transfer to a, a major rival in the Pac-12 is... Uh, less than ideal, to put it mildly, um, but it's also, I think, maybe for him a, a sort of a business decision. My guess is in kind of seeking out his own NFL draft fortunes, he realized that uh, that he was not as highly rated as maybe he hoped. I mean, the thing I saw from Pro Football Reference had him as like the 193rd prospect, which would be like a seventh round draft grade. Yeah. And so if if he kind of got the feedback that he was going to go late in the draft, if if at all, that may have given him some incentive to think about, OK, what what can I do over this next year to bolster my my standing in the draft and, you know, transferring to play for uh, the most innovative offensive mind in the country, uh, moving back to Southern California, where he's from, uh, having the opportunity to, you know, to work with professional trainers of the sort that prepare guys for draft combines in the, you know, in the off season. I mean, 
there, there's just a lot of reasons why from just a purely uh, business perspective of if he's looking that he's got one year to maximize his, uh, his opportunity to get a, a pro contract. I, I don't like it, obviously. I wish he was coming back for one more year. He and his brother have been two of the best Oregon Ducks in my lifetime. Uh, but I think at the same time, how can I not wish him well? you know, that, uh, that it works out for him, that he has a great final year and that it opens a door for him to make it onto an NFL roster somewhere. Absolutely. And I mean, I, I have a tremendous amount of respect for, for his, you know, his gameplay. He, he owned the dogs this year, but it wasn't just the dogs. He was dominant in so many games this season and and really like uh was in my opinion probably other than um you know london at usc when he was healthy he was the most dominant offensive player in the pac-12 in my opinion this year it's interesting um i saw somewhere that the sports books have um have him listed as 150 to one odd to win the heisman this year at USC. And um, I think the best odds for a Pac-12 player at this point is 100 to 1 um, for the Heisman. And I, I thought, man, if I were to put five bucks down on anybody, I think I'd put it down on, on Troy Dye. Because, I mean, we don't know what he'll do in this system. But let's just, hey, just for just a minute, um, what do you think about what Lincoln Riley is doing right now through the transfer portal. Well, he's clearly, uh, I mean, he's clearly taking advantage of it uh, to the best possible degree. I mean, I think you listed off all of the guys, what he's got the best receiver from the Huskies, Nadrick, the best receiver from Colorado. And he, uh, in addition to Travis Dye, uh, pulled in Stanford's running back, right? Uh, Austin yeah. Jones. Um, who, who I guess is going to split carries with Travis Dye. Uh, but really, I think we shouldn't be surprised because I think Lincoln Riley has kind of been ahead of the game in this realm. If you think back to his time at Oklahoma, Baker Mayfield was a transfer, uh, obviously, who was there before Lincoln Riley was there. and But then Kyler Murray after him, Jalen Hurts after him. You know, Lincoln Riley has a history of pulling in highly touted transfers from other schools or guys where it didn't work out at another school and immediately plugging them into play in some cases turning them into Heisman Trophy candidates so it shouldn't it should come as no surprise that immediately upon getting settled in in Southern California he is reaching out and attracting top tier talent through the transfer portal and I think what it what it demonstrates is that there's not going to be like a two to three year wait for Lincoln Riley to have things up and running I fully expect USC to you know, be perhaps the favorite going into this season of, of Pac-12 play because he is going to load the roster as quickly as possible. And teams like Oregon and Washington have to be prepared to follow suit. And I know both of them have been active in the transfer portal themselves. This is college football in the year 2022. Yeah, yeah. And of course, the big fish out there is Caleb Williams, uh, you know, the, his former starting quarterback at Oklahoma enter the transfer portal. Uh, rumors have him going, you know, lots of different places, but USC seems still to be like the the number one favorite to to land Caleb yeah. Williams. Um, 
you know, so it's interesting because like when you think about USC, they really have not had an identity the last five or six years. I mean, they they tried the air raid, but nobody was really buying that. They haven't been a defensive team. They haven't been a running team. Uh, so Lincoln Riley is able to come in and basically just imprint his identity on this team from day one. Um, so it's going to be it's going to be interesting to see how quickly that takes hold and with all these new players and all the upheaval. And, and interestingly, I think um, seeing what Oklahoma has done, hiring Billy Venables, a defensive minded coach, I'll be really curious to see what they do this year as they reshape their identity around this new head coach. Will they still have an explosive offense and the benefit of now a defensive minded coach? Or will their offense regress considerably? And will their defense step forward considerably? That's an interesting thing to, to keep an eye on. But hey, let's get into the biggest part of this show today, which is uh, recapping the wildest weekend ever in NFL playoff history. This was one for the ages, one we will remember for a long time. And uh, so let's start at the beginning of the weekend. Uh, the Bengals came in against the number one ranked uh, Tennessee Titans. We both talked about this last week that we felt like this was a number one seed that was vulnerable yeah. uh, for being upset. And I believe I picked the Titan. I picked the Bengals to win that game. I can't remember what your pick was. We both did. Yeah, we both picked the Bengals. So. Um, yeah, let's break this game down just a little bit. Uh, the first of three games that ended with a walk-off field goal to end the game. Give give me a little bit of your breakdown on this Bengals-Titans game. Well, Ryan Tannehill, rough day for him. Three interceptions, threw an interception on his first throw, threw an interception on his last throw, and the last one was an absolute killer because it looked at that point like uh, the Titans were going to pull this one out. They had kind of uh, trailed, you know, all game long. Uh, I mean, they had fallen behind 16 to six kind of early in the second half. And then they were able to claw back into it, claw back into it. They, they had the game tied going into the fourth quarter. And I mean, it really looked like, um, you know, the Titans were going to find a way to pull it out in part because they were putting pressure on Joe Burrow all game long. They sacked him nine times. I mean, the Bengals offense, uh, they were lucky to get field goal drives uh, the way that they were able to because uh, the Titans were putting so much pressure on. And, and it was really only those turnovers by Tannehill that kind of kept the Bengals in the game. Yeah. And finally, that third interception uh, put the Bengals in position and uh, the Bengals capitalized. Rookie Evan McPherson, 52-yard field goal, his fourth field goal goal of the game is second field goal from beyond 50 yards in the game uh quite a way to to end it for the Bengals yeah I think this was a, a really really great win for this Cincinnati Bengals team because you know we knew that they could win in that uh shootout type of mentality you know just tossing the ball down the field and and putting up lots of points but this is a different kind of a win for a uh, young quarterback, Joe Burrow. He was harassed 
all game long. As you mentioned, nine sacks. That's just the number of sacks he got. That's not the number of quarterback pressures. That's not the number of hits that he took during the game. But to be able to keep your composure, to recognize that this was the kind of game that was going to be uh, one with field goals and, and one with field position, I think says a lot about his maturity as a, a quarterback. It it definitely had a little bit of that early Patriots kind of feel to it, where it was just, you know, just doing enough to win the game at the end of the game. And, um, you know, kudos to Derrick Henry uh, making the comeback. Uh, you know, they weren't able to fully utilize him as much as I think they would have if he had had a game or two more under his belt, but he, he performed admirably. Uh, Foreman, who was his backup running back, had some really nice runs uh, in the game as well. But this is what we talked about last week. We said, you know, when it comes down to the playoffs, it's about the quarterback. And do you see Ryan Tannehill as one of those franchise quarterbacks that can win the game when the game is on the line. And uh, the answer was no, we don't see that in spite of, uh, you know, AJ Brown having an incredible game. Uh, Tannehill just was not able to get it done. Yeah. And Joe Burrow to his credit, I mean, he's played in two playoff games and he's completing 73% of his passes with over eight yards of attempt. So it's not just dink and dunk. He's throwing the ball downfield. He's almost thrown for 300 yards a game at a 73% clip. That's like peak Drew Brees is what Joe Burrow's production level has been. And he's the, th- he's easily the third best quarterback in the AFC right now. Like, oh, he, yeah. like, like that. I mean, he's, he's performing at peak Drew Brees level and he's not even in the conversation for, yeah. for the top two, which tells you how insane this weekend yeah. was. I mean, and again, give him credit because this is a this is a guy. He's in his second year. He didn't even get to play his whole rookie season. Gets sacked nine times. He's harassed all day long. The running game never got going, so everybody knew he was going to be dropping back on on almost every single offensive play. And he did enough to get this yeah. team to win. And uh, I think that's extremely impressive and a, a sign that. Hey, this might not be his year, but good things are in store for the Cincinnati Bengals team if everybody stays healthy and together. 100%, 100%. I think it's all it's all gravy at this point. I would not expect them to to keep advancing, but they're also playing a Chiefs team that they beat about 3 weeks ago. So, we can't we can't rule it completely out. It's been a, a wonderful ride so far and uh and they're one of four teams left, so they've got a chance. They do. And speaking of having a chance, not a lot of people gave the San Francisco 49ers a chance going into Lambeau Field to, uh, to, to play against Aaron Rodgers and, uh, and the Packers. In spite of the fact that the Niners have ousted Aaron Rodgers from the playoffs, well, was this the fourth time uh, that they've done that uh, in Aaron Rodgers' career? Yes, he is 0-4 against the 49ers in his playoff career. It's the most losses he has against any team has been against the Niners. Yeah. And so the, 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 the Niners 
beat the Packers 13 to 10 uh, without scoring an offensive touchdown. Um, they held Aaron Rodgers to his worst playoff game, uh, you know, at Lambeau Field. And, you know, this has been covered repeatedly over the last couple of days. But uh, going into the game, the the Green Bay Packers were statistically the worst special teams unit in the NFL. And that weakness was exposed on just an unprecedented level against this 49ers team. Warren, my high school coach had a saying that he used to say where he said, defense wins championships and special teams loses them. And that that was exactly what happened uh, with the Packers. That Mason Crosby missed a field goal. He's normally been a reliable kicker throughout his career, but this year he has been totally erratic. He missed a field goal. And then, of course, they they let the Niners through for a blocked punt uh, when they were punting out of their own end zones. So, of course, the Niners pounce on that at about the three yard line and run it in for for an easy touchdown. And then, I mean, to me, this was the capper is. The Niners are drive have driven down for a chance at a game-winning field goal. Robbie Gold comes out for the game-winning kick for the Niners, and the Packers' special teams are so disorganized that they only put ten players on the field to defend the final kick of the game. I mean, it was it was an absolute catastrophe mm. uh, for the special teams unit in uh, in a game where their defense kind of for like the first time in the Aaron Rodgers era like really dominated a playoff game. I mean, he normally doesn't get that kind of effort on the defensive side and they were awesome yeah. all game long but the offense was inept after the first drive and the special teams was horrific and as a result the Packers the number one seed in the NFL are are going home again and it may be what maybe the end of Aaron Rodgers time there yeah you know we could we could take a lot of time to talk about those special teams plays but the the one that we talked about a little bit after the game was the the Packers had the ball, I believe, with about two minutes left. Um, they had an opportunity to kind of, you know, take it down the field and put this thing, you know, away. And on third and 11, uh, Aaron Rodgers just kind of chucks the ball deep to yeah. Devontae Adams, who was double covered. It really never had a chance. Um Going back and looking at it later, um, Alan Lazard was was wide open about 15 yards down the field. What do you make of that? You know, really, that was the final chance for for Aaron Rodgers. What do you make of of that decision in that last moment? It it was baffling. I mean, it was a baffling play call, uh, especially knowing that if you don't get it there, you're punting it back to the Niners with plenty of time for them to drive down and try to to mount a game-winning uh, field goal, even though the Niners' offense had been not much better. Like, that's, that's still just – it seemed like a ridiculous idea that, okay, we're just going to jack it up and throw it 40 yards down the field instead of let's try to get a first down and milk this clock. We don't want to give the other team the ball. Uh, but it kind of Aaron Rodgers just throughout the game just kind of had this um, almost like a disinterested like approach. Mm -hmm. Like there was there was one play uh, I want to say maybe in the third quarter when uh, the starting cornerback for the Niners went down and they had to bring a backup who was 
you know, who was a little shaky. And Troy Aikman immediately is like, all right, this backup corner is in. He's on Devontae Adams. This is where you go to Devontae Adams. Like uh, Rodgers should go to Devontae Adams. And sure enough, Adams beats this corner off the line. Rodgers diagnoses that and then makes like one of the worst throws I've seen Aaron Rodgers make. I mean, it was like he's normally one of the most accurate passers in NFL history. Right. And he like threw it, threw it at Devonte Adams feet. I mean, it was just, and Aikman was kind of hiding his disgust. It was kind of like, you know, this is quarterbacking one oh one here. Your best receiver is being guarded by mm-hmm. a, a shaky defender. Like you take advantage of the matchup and you get a first down and he didn't. And the Packers had to punt. And it just kind of had that feel of, um, you know, you, you don't know what the reason is. You don't want to speculate what the reason is, but, uh, but it was clear that he was not dialed in uh, in the way that Aaron Rodgers normally is. Yeah, I agree. And so once again, we've got an Aaron Rodgers team in which uh, they were the, the best team in the NFL this season. Rodgers very well may, may likely win another MVP. And yet uh, they're out again. And now Rodgers maybe you know, looking at his last game as an NFL quarterback, perhaps his last game uh, as a Green Bay Packer, and his final playoff record with the Packers is 11-10 and 10, with four of those losses coming against the San Francisco 49ers. Um, you know, how do you, how do you kind of measure out that legacy? of incredible dominance during the regular season. They did get a Super Bowl win, but a lot of unfulfilled expectations. Yeah, it's 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 puzzling. I, I did a bit of a deep dive on this after that game because I was trying to answer this question because if you look at his just his raw stats, they're not that dissimilar from the regular season when he's clearly one of the best quarterbacks in the league like not there are some quarterbacks where it's significantly there's a drop-off they throw a lot more interceptions in the playoffs or their completion percentage is significantly down or something like that Rodgers doesn't have that Rodgers touchdown interception ratio is magnificent even in the playoffs Um, this was actually the first time his team has failed to score 20 points in a playoff game so this kind of performance was really unique for him so as far as why does he kind of have this history I think there is some of it a has been, he hasn't been supported by some great defenses. If you look at, um, you know, he lost his first playoff game of his career, 51 to 45. Like he's had games like that where his defense is just not helping him out at all. He's had multiple games like this last one where he was sacked five times. Uh, his offensive line has not always been up to the challenge of, of protecting him. I would say Russell Wilson is the only other elite quarterback of, of the modern era who is, you know, been sacked the way that Aaron Rodgers has but then there's also some of it were kind of the things that we're talking about where there have been certainly moments you think last year in the NFC championship game uh, Tom Brady threw three interceptions on three consecutive drives and the Packers were unable to capitalize and so there are these moments where if you look at the end of the game and Aaron Rodgers box score says he had a pretty good game but if you isolate on the two or three drives where his team really needed something 
they didn't materialize. And I don't know whether that's on him, whether that's again on the offensive line, whether it's on his receivers, it's probably a mixture of those things. I think there are plenty of hall of fame quarterbacks that have had, you know, pretty pedestrian uh, playoff winning percentages. And I don't always think that that's totally on the quarterback, but it's definitely a, a weird kind of, footnote to put on his resume you know the green bay packers have been blessed with brett Favre and aaron Rodgers for basically right. three decades yeah and they're gonna have two super bowl victories to show for it and and you would think if uh if i gave you the over under on that 30 years ago you would think you would get more than two wins out of out of uh quarterbacks of that caliber absolutely absolutely Yeah, Mark, you mentioned, uh, you know, some other Hall of Fame quarterbacks, and I kind of put a little research into this as well. I mentioned that Aaron Rodgers, his playoff record as it stands right now, 11-10, not that great when you consider the success and the fact that most of his teams came in as the one or two seed, oftentimes having home field advantage and a, and a bye. Um, so here we go. Aaron Rodgers, 11-10. Troy Aikman's playoff record 11 and 4. Roger Staubach 11 and 6. Tom Brady 32 and 11, or maybe 32 and 12 now. Um, Joe Montana 16 and 7. Terry Bradshaw 14 and 5. John Elway 14 and 7. Peyton Manning 14 13. Ben Roethlisberger 13 10 and Brett Favre 13 and 11. So, I mean, he's obviously in great company in terms of all of those quarterbacks are all-time greats. They're all Hall of Famers uh, or will be Hall of Famers uh, at some point in the future. But clearly um, in that company, he is on the bottom end of the spectrum in terms of winning percentage as a Hall of Fame quarterback. Yeah. And I guess I, I hear that. And I think, uh, you know, like you, you, you mentioned Troy Aikman right off the top. What was Troy Aikman 11 and four or something like that? 11 and four. Yeah. I mean, to me, Troy Aikman, no disrespect to Troy Aikman. He was a great quarterback. He's a hall of famer, but I think like in terms of who is the guy that was like, had the best situation around him for the prime of his career, he's got Emmett Smith. He's got Michael Irvin. He had the best offensive line in football and yeah. he had an elite defense on the other side. Like, I think any Hall of Famer, you know, somebody like um, Dan Marino, who has a losing record in the playoffs, if you put Dan Marino on those Cowboys teams for five years, his career probably looks totally differently in terms of, you know, Super Bowls and everything like that. So, you know, I don't necessarily look at that and say, well, mm -hmm. um, Troy Aikman's better than Aaron Rodgers or, you know, um, Troy Aikman had a better situation than just about anybody and he took advantage of it. Uh, but I think Aaron Rodgers had enough talent around him that yeah. 11 and 10 is, is pretty stunning. Like, I mean, that, that, it, that doesn't compute with how excellent his teams were throughout the regular right. season. And I think, you know, to be fair, like Dan Marino, you're right. He was oftentimes coming into the game as the underdog, as the, you know, the team that was not favored. But I think yeah. if you were to look at Aaron Rodgers' record, a majority of those games, his team was the higher seed and was favored to win. So yes. 
you've got to take account into that that like you know he wasn't coming in every season as the wild card you know playing on the road six seed you know he was coming in as the bully as the you know the the big dog and couldn't get it done yeah and that's you know that's certainly certainly true i'm i'm looking through and i mean he has that lot you know a 15 and 1 team that lost to Eli Manning and the Giants at home he lost to Kaepernick famously at home um he has uh, obviously this loss was at home he had the loss to Brady last year at home so he's he's definitely got a handful of losses in the friendly confines of Lambeau Field and that's that's significantly more than you would think from a from a top tier quarterback playing at home in the playoffs. Well, we will talk about the 49ers in just a few minutes when we look ahead to the next game. Uh, but let's keep moving on because the games just kept getting better and better. And the first game on the Sunday slate was the Los Angeles Rams versus the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Um, this game opened up with the Rams just looking like the dominant team. Aaron Donald was on a whole nother level, um, just wreaking havoc throughout the game. And Von Miller, uh, you know, coming in and, and putting pressure on Tom Brady. Tom Brady, you know, had the epic bloody lip stare into the camera that was replayed over and over and over in the first half. Um, and right as the right as the first half comes to an end, it looks like the Rams are going to go in for a, a, a touchdown to increase their lead to 27-3. and three. Cam Akers, um, who miraculously came back after uh, a, you know, a season-ending injury, fumbles the ball and keeps the you know keeps the the points down to 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 20 to 3 but they still go ahead 27 to 3 at the beginning of the second half and then everything fell apart Un, an unbelievable run of the next six possessions for the rams included three fumbles a missed field goal and two three and outs and if you were looking like if you were looking for a football team that's throwing a game, that's what six possessions might look like for a team that was on the take and was actively trying to lose. And those fumbles were not like you, you have a nine play drive and then you fumble at the end of the drive. It was first play of the drive. Cooper cup fumbles the ball. First play of the drive. The center snaps the ball over Matthew Stafford's head. Uh, the last fumble of the game from cam Akers came on the second play of the drive. So they were, they gave the Buccaneers the ball in wonderful field position over and over again. And then the odd thing was, it was like the Buccaneers didn't, didn't fully, yeah. <laughs> didn't fully know how to capitalize on it. Right. Like it, you texted me multiple times, like the game was over because here are the Bucks failing to convert a fourth down and it felt like they just weren't going to do it. Yeah. I mean, the Bucks failed to convert a fourth down. They've got a, they, they fumbled the ball themselves. Uh, you know, I mean, Tom Brady fumbles the ball of all people, yeah. but they work themselves down. They get a field goal. And then, you know, Brady finds a streaking Mike Evans going down the field, gets a very quick 55 yard score. And now all of a sudden you're going, okay. Uh, there's, you know, they're, 
there's just a few minutes, but there's a chance here. Again, they work their way down the field after another um, Los Angeles Rams fumble. Leonard Fournette scores the touchdown, and you're going, okay, this is another Tom Brady epic special. This is this is the Falcons Super Bowl game all over again, and Matt Stafford's going to have to wear this for the rest of his life. And then after, uh, you know, Stafford's, you know, problems in the in the third, late third and early fourth quarter. After Cooper Cup of all people fumbles the ball and gives it away, uh, they come together and get two completions in a matter of seconds yeah. to bring this thing back into field goal position and have an easy walk off field goal to to win this thing. Um, you know what what does this say about Matt Stafford and, and his development and his legacy as a quarterback you texted me with entering that final drive you know 45 seconds or whatever does you know can Stafford do this and I texted you back well not the way he's played in the second half and I doubt in hindsight was unfair to Stafford they had they did have two three and outs where he threw incomplete passes but none of those three fumbles were his fault including the snap that went over his head um and the missed field goal wasn't his fault, which was a drive where he was he had completed several passes to get them down into scoring position. So Matthew Stafford had a brilliant first half and then was mostly negated by the by the miscues of others in the second half. Uh, but coming into that final drive, there was real pressure on him. I mean, it looked like the Rams were in total self-destruct mode. I think everybody in the stadium and everybody watching on TV was assuming this game was going to overtime and Brady and the Buccaneers were going to find a way to, to steal it. And if you think about Matthew Stafford's career, he spent 12 years in Detroit. He's never won a playoff game. He had never in his career been in a situation like that. On the road, game on the line, like do or die. And he comes through with two perfect passes. Cooper mm -hmm. Cup does exactly what you would like the best receiver in the league to do, which is gets wide open on two consecutive uh, plays. And I think I think it's potentially a legacy changer for for Matthew Stafford, especially if he yeah. wins this week and, and takes a team to the Super Bowl. I think it shows that this guy was buried in Detroit for 12 years, putting up ridiculous stats and all of us kind of wondering, is he really good? I mean, he's on this bad team like we don't know, but it's I mean, he played every bit as well as the other quarterbacks of this weekend. Well, let's not go that far. I won't say he played every bit as well, but um, you know, he definitely showed his worth in 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 this game. And and when I say worth, the fact that uh Sean McVay sold the farm in order to get Stafford on this team, believing that uh a quarterback like Stafford could be the difference between uh them losing in the divisional round, winning in the divisional round. And I think the short-term returns show this was an investment that paid off for McVeigh. And, you know, we talked about in that 49ers-Packers game, kind of that perplexing play by Aaron Rodgers with third and 11 and chucking the ball into double coverage. And then almost kind of the inverse of that, the Buccaneers needing to keep the, the Rams out of field goal position they 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 allow the the 20 yard pickup from Cooper Cup 
and allow him to get out of bounds. But then yeah. the next play was really the one that was perplexing. They went all in with the blitz. Uh, Antoine Winfield uh, was caught totally flat-footed and allowed the triple crown winner of the wide receiver, you know, the, the best wide receiver in the NFL to go deep right up the middle with no contest whatsoever. I mean, it was just like the easiest deep throw you can imagine. And, uh, you know, you just have to wonder what on earth was Todd Bowles thinking with that play call? And was Antoine Winfield just totally, I mean, did he totally miss his assignment? Yeah, it was almost like he was out of position, like he thought Cup was going to break off the route or something, and then Cup just kept going, and, and there wasn't enough time to recover. And But Matthew Stafford, his his statistics on like the advanced metrics side this season is that he is the best quarterback against the Blitz in the NFL, that his numbers are better than anybody else's. And so the Buccaneers sent six pass rushers, and to his credit, he picked them apart. And when you have the best receiver in the league, that's a great safety valve when you see six guys coming at you and you've got the best receiver in the league going on a go route in, in man coverage, you put it up for him and, you know, credit to Stafford and cup for taking advantage of the moment and, and uh, keeping their team alive. Well, before we move on to the, the, the final game of the weekend, um, I just want to put something out there. I want to get your feedback on this, but you know, the, the candidates for the MVP this year have pretty much been uh, Tom Brady or Aaron Rodgers. But I think that Cooper Cup really deserves serious consideration for that award MVP. The, the triple crown, what he did, I mean, this year is... Uh, you know, it, 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 when you're, when you're being talked about in the same stratosphere as Jerry Rice and his greatest season in the NFL, that's, I mean, that's historic. Um, there's always going to be a quarterback that passes for 4,500, 5,000 yards, 40 touchdowns. But what Cooper cup did this year for his team was just on another level I would if I were if I had a vote, my vote for MVP this year would go to Cooper Cup. Yeah, I think that's I think that's fair, especially if we're kind of talking about the MVP as who is the best skill position player. You know, the MVP never goes to like I mean Aaron Donald could win the MVP as well, right? Like he, he is as impactful as any player on the field, uh, but it there that's what they have defensive player of the year for somebody like Aaron Donald. Uh, so if you're, if we're talking about a skill player, I think there is a short list of wide receivers that have had the impact on the game. You mentioned rice. I think Randy Moss in his prime mm -hmm. was another one. And honestly, beyond that, the list kind of drops off. Like there's a lot of other great receivers, but not to this degree where they totally, totally impact everything about the game. And, and, completely dominate the opposition um, in big moments. And so, yeah, I don't think that's overstating it at all. I think he's had one of the great seasons a receiver has ever had this year. And he probably, but, you know, and thinking about game. it, Mark, I mean, think about it like two, if you consider Cooper cups to be one of the greatest seasons in, in NFL history as a wide receiver, 
Calvin Johnson's 2000 yard season would also have to be in that conversation. So two of perhaps maybe the three or four greatest wide receiver seasons of all time, the quarterback was Matthew Stafford. Right. So that's, yeah. that's an interesting little, you know, footnote as well. When you think about what Stafford has done, uh, I don't think he belongs in the MVP conversation this year, but it's a, un- it's a unique um, footnote that two of the greatest wide receiver seasons of all time, the quarterback was Matthew Stafford. Well, and, and uh, you know, Rice had his best seasons with Montana and Steve Young. Uh, Randy Moss had his best seasons with Tom Brady or, or Randall Cunningham with the Vikings. Or Dante uh, Culpepper. Or Dante Culpepper, who was a super yeah. talented quarterback before he was injured. Yeah. So you need a great quarterback to have the kind of season that those guys have. The one thing I would say about the Calvin Johnson season is I think the Lions went 4-12 and 12 that year. Like, yeah. I mean, that, uh, you know, that was not a vintage like playoff Super Bowl contending team. Right. That was a quarterback and a receiver getting a lot of garbage time yards, you know, because their team right. just wasn't very good. And and that's not a, a to take away anything from Calvin Johnson and 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 Stafford, who I think, you know, their talent was on full display, but there just wasn't a lot around the talent. This year's Rams team has enough talent around it to kind of maximize the value of what Cooper Cup is doing. Agreed. Agreed. All right, let's get into this last game of the weekend. This was uh, the coup d'etat. It was the, the, the exclamation point, the Chiefs and the Bills. This one did not end on a game, uh, you know, game-ending field goal. This one went to overtime. And, uh, boy, two of the greatest quarterbacking performances in NFL history – it's already being called one of the greatest football games ever played. And um, just it was just a spectacular show of two teams, especially offensively, firing on all cylinders and doing things that we have never seen done before. Mark, give me your breakdown about this game. I mean, it was, it was football nirvana. It was offensive football nirvana. We should say, I mean, yeah. you, you, you said everything about it. Uh, it's on the short list of the greatest football games I've ever watched. Uh, there were 30 minute, 30 points scored after the two minute warning. Think about that one, 30 points scored after the two minute warning. You had uh, Buffalo receiver Gabriel Davis had four touchdowns in the game and over 200 yards receiving and is almost an afterthought because of how incredible this game was and how well Josh Allen played and how well Mahomes and his, his team played. I mean, you had uh, Mahomes leading a game trying field drive with 13 seconds and it didn't seem all of that surprising because that's the, the level of, of play that we've come to expect from Patrick Mahomes. I mean, it was just, it was so wild. It felt to me like we were watching the two best teams in the league. It's a pity that it happened in the divisional round because I think, this should have been the Super Bowl. Like, I think these, mm. I think these were the two best teams. And I wish there was some way that this game could have happened uh, a little later in the process. But what an unbelievable game and what an unbelievable heartbreak for, for Buffalo. Absolutely. And, you know, if you're Buffalo, obviously you're disappointed in the final outcome of this game, but 
you have got to be really excited about the future of this Buffalo Bills organization. Josh Allen has established himself as a bona fide superstar, uh, you know, on equal level with Mahomes in every way. He can throw, he can run, he played clutch at the end of the game. Um, the the this this is a fun team, and you got to believe that next year, every you know every NFL fan who is not cheering for their immediate home team is going to be rooting for the Buffalo Bills next season, wanting to see them have that breakthrough. You know, it kind of now this may be a little bit of an overstep, but you know, kind of a little bit reminds me of. Uh, you know, the early years with Michael Jordan and the and the Chicago Bulls when he couldn't get past uh, the Detroit Pistons. And, you know, everybody just knew that that time was coming, but it took a little while. And yeah. I'd love to see that for Josh Allen, for the for the Bills to have that breakthrough, to, to get to the, the Super Bowl, win it and uh, and have that moment. Uh, but absolutely one of the best games we've ever seen. And now uh, the Chiefs find themselves hosting uh, the conference championship for the fourth year in a row at home. Uh, I mean, this is just uh, a, an incredible run for Mahomes, for Kelsey and Andy Reid and crew. Uh, man, I mean, I'm just, there's, there's no shortage of uh, adjectives to use to describe this this game yeah and I, I want to take a moment just to kind of acknowledge that you know we both picked buffalo here because we kind of thought this was a special season brewing for buffalo and, and the chiefs looked like they weren't quite firing on all cylinders and then we kind of had a little throwaway moment at the end where we said well but you know we could come back a week from now and be like oh what, but mahomes is still mahomes and the chiefs are still the chiefs and and you know why did we bet against them and and I don't think you could fault anybody for picking one team over the other. I think this game, you know, showed that these two teams are as evenly matched as they come, but for Kansas city to pull this one out and just to kind of look at the, the collection of players that they've got where they've got Mahomes, who is this freakishly talented quarterback and they've got Tyree kill. Who's the fastest player in the league. And they've got Travis Kelsey, who's one of the greatest tight ends of all time. And they've got Andy Reed, who is, I think now being widely recognized as a, as just an offensive mastermind. Mm -hmm. And it is not just Patrick Mahomes. It is an offensive yeah. unit. And now, now with a healthy offensive line again, after that got decimated last year, it is an offensive unit that is in perfect sync with one another in right. so many different ways. And that was, to me, that was evident in, in the overtime period. There was a, a play where they were driving in overtime and they just ran a little uh, kind of a misdirection where McColl Hardman was crossing across, uh, kind of doing a shallow cross while all of the other receivers were drifting the other way. And Mahomes hit Hardman in stride and he ran like 36 yards and picked, you know, got him close to, to the red zone. And it was Hardman's first catch of the game. And you realize like, oh yeah, they're sitting on this guy who has blazing speed himself, who they haven't even used all game long. And then they kind of run this little gadget play that they've been holding on to all game long. 
and they busted for 30 yards. Like they're just, they're so loaded offensively in so many different ways and really just a joy to watch from that side of the ball. Yeah. And of course, by the end of the game, you know, the, the, both defenses were gassed and uh, you know, the, the points were just flying in either direction, but really at the start of the game, uh, Buffalo, especially the first couple drives, they were really uh, putting a lot of pressure on Mahomes, but Mahomes used his legs yes. to keep the drive alive. Third down after third down, he was scrambling. He was avoiding sacks. He was running for, for first downs. He was passing on the run. He was using all those crazy arm angles. There was one play in particular where he was uh, running out to his right and he passed the ball at about waist level yes. and it just zipped underneath the arms of a Buffalo defender. I mean, just unbelievable stuff that you would never teach a young quarterback to do, but Mahomes can do it. So yeah, it, you're right. It, I mean, the, the Kansas city chiefs, when they're playing like they're playing right now, they are the closest thing to the infinity gauntlet that you can have yeah. in the NFL. I mean, it's just like all the stones in the gauntlet were glowing on Sunday night and uh, they, they seemed invincible. So that, that leaves us coming, kind of coming into this question of let's look ahead to this week and talk briefly about do do these Cincinnati Bengals have any hope whatsoever of competing with Thanos in the infinity gauntlet? It's a tough task uh, seeing how the chiefs have played the last two weeks and realizing that the Bengals did just beat them. They beat them 34 to 31 a few weeks ago, and it took an all time record setting performance from Jamar chase. The, like the, he set the rookie receiving record in that game. And it's still, they just barely beat them. Mm -hmm. And I, it just, I mean, playing at home, the chiefs have got to be so energized coming off this one that I would just have a hard time seeing uh, this young Bengals team kind of beat Kansas city twice in a matter of about a month. Uh, that, that seems like a tall task to me. Uh, having said that, I think we did see that the chiefs defense is exploitable against an elite quarterback and Joe Burrow fits that bill. He's already, you know, done that to them once. So I think there are yards to be had and there are points to be had. I just, I have real questions that, that Burrow can, um, can maintain the ridiculous pace that will be needed to, to keep, keep up with this version of Mahomes and the chiefs that we've seen the last two weeks. So I think that kind of poses the question for me is what kind of a game does Cincinnati want to play on Sunday if they want to, or say, are they playing on Saturday? I can't no, they're both, both on Sunday. Both on Sunday. Okay. Yeah. So what kind of game do, do the Cincinnati Bengals want to play against this Chiefs game? Do they, Chiefs, do they want to get into another 1916 kind of a game or are they going to need to just, you know, throw caution to the wind and, you know, go downfield, go deep, try to outscore them. What's the best path for a potential victory for this Cincinnati Bengals team? Well, there have been games earlier this year where the chiefs were kind of slow starting or where the chiefs didn't really find their rhythm offensively. 
and and they and they did have to pull out kind of low scoring games but i i don't think that's an option right now i mean this the way the chiefs have performed offensively the last two weeks it feels like they're firing on all cylinders uh, I kind of compare them to like an NBA team like the Shaq Kobe Lakers when they used to kind of coast through the regular season and then just turn it on in the playoffs and start obliterating teams. Like that's what this team feels like to me. So beating them in some sort of low scoring, you know, grudge fest would really surprise me. I think we're much more likely to see the Chiefs operating at peak capacity. And if the Bengals want to beat them, they've they've got to match them in the way that the the Bills almost did, you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, the, the, the closest thing I can think of, of, you know, that where this could, you know, this could change would be, uh, you know, the, the first Super Bowl that Tom Brady won against the, the greatest show on turf, you know, and, yeah. and at that time, nobody had seen an offense like that. They were scoring at record numbers. Um, you know, since, since then, some offenses have, have exceeded that. But at that time, what Kurt Warner and Mike Martz and Tory Holt and Isaac Bruce and Marshall Falk were doing, they, they, they looked like they had the infinity gauntlet. Uh, so I just, I think it's going to have to be a game where uh, defensive coordinator for the Bengals, Lou Anarumo, is that right? I Lou don't know how to pronounce Yeah. Uh, he's going to have to dial up something that uh, this Chiefs team is not prepared for. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think we'll, we'll, I'm sure we're both in agreement that uh, our pick is the Chiefs. Um, and so let's talk about the NFC uh, Conference Championship, a rematch for the third time this season between the 49ers and the Rams. The, the, the Rams are hosting it. They're the higher ranked team. They have the better record at the end of the season, but this is a 49ers team that has won six straight over this Rams squad. So there's two ways to think about this, Mark. There's, there's the, the thought, hey, why would you pick against the 49ers when they've won six in a row? The other thought is, boy, it's really hard to beat the same team three times in a row in one season. So where do you lean on, on that, those two arguments? Yeah, I'm much more of the latter opinion that I think, um, I think especially in a case where teams are fairly evenly matched, or in this case where I think the Rams might be a little better. I think asking the Niners to beat them three times in a row, really tall task. Their last, the last game of the regular season they played, it was 27 to 24. That was an overtime win. And that was the Niners needing to win to clinch the playoffs. The Rams were playing for the number one seed technically. So like they were playing their starters, but that game meant a lot more to the 49ers than it did to the Rams. And, and they just barely pulled it out in overtime. So I don't look at this as like the Niners have some significant edge over the Rams that is going to be exploited. And I think the Rams have looked really good these last two weeks against the Cardinals and then against the Buccaneers in the first half, at least, you know, I know they went into self-destruct mode a little bit, but I don't see them doing that 
against a 49ers team that's led by Jimmy Garoppolo. I don't think they're going to get the yips in the second half feeling the shadow of Garoppolo creeping up on them the way they might with Tom Brady on the other sideline. So I, I expect, uh, I expect the Rams to play well. I expect the Niners defense to keep it close, but I think at the end uh, there's more talent on the Rams side than there is on the 49ers side. And I think that will, that will bear itself out. Well, you may be right. This is an interesting call because I think, uh, you know, both teams have a lot of similarities. Um, they're they're both tough teams. They've got a dominant defensive player, of course, Aaron Donald for the Rams, uh, Bosa for the 49ers. And I think it'll really come down, I think, in my opinion, to how much pressure can each defensive line put on the opposing quarterback. Uh, Jimmy Garoppolo seems to be more accustomed to winning these ugly games than Matt Stafford. And so if this does become an ugly game, uh, you have to think that uh, at the very least Garoppolo, Garoppolo knows what to do in those moments. Um, and, and, you know, and then you've got the, the two most dominant wide receivers in the NFL this year, Debo Samuel uh, for the 49ers who's also been a, a vital part of the running game for this 49ers team and Cooper cup, who we've mentioned, you know, potentially the MVP of the NFL this season. So I'm going to say uh, for the sake of, of just splitting the tie, I'm going to, I'm going to pick the 49ers to win this thing. Uh, okay. Maybe there's just a little bit of magic. Maybe there's a sense of destiny there. And, uh, and, and I'm going to take the 49ers to, to beat the Rams and uh, make it to the Super Bowl once again. Okay, well, we shall, we shall see. It'll, it should be, uh, should be another fun weekend to see how this plays out. Well, Mark, as we wrap it up, um, any final thoughts? Do you have a, a sound of the day or Mark's moment you want to share? I will, I will share a Mark's moment. How about that? Um, I just one quick thought here and my heart goes out to the city of Buffalo and their fans. This was a brutal way to lose. And this is a franchise that has experienced other brutal ways to lose. You know, they lost on the Scott Norwood field goal, uh, miss they, they missed uh, lost the Super Bowl because Scott Norwood missed a field goal. That's on the short list of worst Super Bowl losses out there, you know, along with the Malcolm Butler game and, and some others. Uh, they were on the wrong side of the Music City Miracle several mm -hmm. years ago against the Tennessee Titans. Like they've had a history of kind of being on the wrong side of some of these devastating losses. This one is going to hurt as much as any of them. Uh, having the game wrapped up 13 seconds to go and then to have it taken from you, really rough way to go out. Uh, but I do think that if for this particular version of the Bills, to become a Super Bowl champ, they had to have a loss like this to fully identify with all of the kind of the pain and the suffering and the misery that, that the Bills franchise has experienced. So I look at this as fuel. I think, you know, we've seen this countless times. We saw this with the Chiefs a few years ago, losing a very similar overtime game to the Patriots and then coming mm -hmm. back the next year, steeled, resolved and winning the Super Bowl. So uh, I know it hurts for Buffalo right now but i you know like you said earlier am going to go into next season fully rooting for this bills team to get over the hump 
and return to the Super Bowl for the first time in a couple decades and, and bring home a trophy. I think uh, they deserve it, and they're good enough to do it. And uh, I'll, I'll be interested to see them try. I think we all will. And like I said, a lot of teams, a lot of people are going to be vote, uh, cheering for this Buffalo Bills team. Uh, they're a lot of fun to watch. They're fun to root for. And uh, we wish them the best. Well, hey, we're going to wrap things up on the Dog and Duck Show. Thank you for joining us. For all my dog fans out there, go dogs. And for all my duck fans, go ducks. Catch you next time. <laughs>